The presenting sponsor of EgoCheck with the NDM is RPG Research. RPG Research is an open international community sharing, studying, and providing accessible and inclusive collaborative music and games to help improve people's lives. They are a 501c3 research and human services nonprofit, 100% volunteer run organization. They provide music and role playing game research in addition to community programs using collaborative music and games to help people improve their functioning and quality of life. Uh, some of the populations that they've worked with in the past are individuals with ADHD, anxiety, individuals on the autism spectrum, individuals dealing with depression, impulse control, and other mental health issues. RPG Research openly shares and works with individuals and organizations from many areas of interest with the goal of improving the overall human condition through cooperative experiential learning programs using music and games. For more information about the resources available and their services, visit rpgresearch.com. That site again is rpgresearch.com. check with the DM. I'm your host, Michael Mallon. This week, I'm excited to welcome Grant Ellis onto the show. You may know him as Wise Papa Grant from Twitter. He has been doing Twitch streams, uh, producing tabletop role-playing games to be viewed by everyone, and I'm very excited to hear about that. And really, not to bury the lead, we're just going to talk a lot about A Knight's Tale. We're really going to celebrate that movie and talk about it, talk about why we love it. So, Grant, welcome to the show. Well, thank you for having me. It's an honor and a privilege to be here talking about one of my favorite movies. <laughs> so I've I was gonna do the math and actually do a search of how many times I've tweeted about a Knight's Tale, which I'm guessing it's a few times every other month or so. It's just something I come back to over time, and then you had responded to it one of the messages a few weeks ago and I was like, Hey, we should record a podcast just about this movie. And you're like, okay. So, so here we are, which is great for folks who are not familiar with your work. You have a Patreon account. You're creating a lot of shows for, for people to watch. What are you doing in the tabletop role-playing game field? All right. I'll talk a little bit about that. I am an independent content creator for tabletop role-playing games. Um, I organize and run conventions in the Northern Virginia area. Um, I'm the producer for WebDM Show's Twitch channel. Uh, they have a YouTube channel with about 150,000 subscribers, and I am their Twitch producer, Excellent. Uh, taking the lead on all that content. Um, I am. I run a Patreon where I make sure cast members on my actual play shows can get paid. Uh, we run a number of games uh, from games that I've designed myself based on movies like A Knight's Tale uh, to uh, Invisible Sun by Monty Cook Games, uh, as well as Blades in the Dark by John Harper. Um, I've been a dungeon master on Encounter Roleplay's Twitch channel seven different seasons, uh, running for a variety of uh, designers for 5th edition Dungeons & Dragons, such as James Hake, uh uh, Will Jones, so on and so forth. Uh, a lot of individuals uh, have played at my table. Um, 
I run a lot of Cypher System for Monty Cook Games on a variety of channels, including their official channel. Um, any given time, I'm on anywhere between 5 to 15 shows, depending on the season. It's my full-time job after my full-time job, uh, <laughs> producing content. Okay. Uh, by day, I'm the chief operations officer for a uh, analytics company, which I don't have background in. I have a background in film. Uh, but... Uh, I'm also a designer for a number of different companies as a freelancer. I've written and contributed to about seven different fifth edition Dungeons and Dragons titles. I'm a contributing author on an Invisible Sun book by Monica Games. I was a uh, designer on the Reach of Titan game. Um, and as well as I have my own personal work uh, that I put out there into the world on occasion. Uh, mostly it's designed to be run... Uh, specifically for shows, I try to design systems that are entertaining to watch. So that's kind of the uh, the short version of the long version of the long version of the short version. Uh, take it or leave it. Uh, but those are some of the things that I'm up to. Also, I'm very active on Twitter uh, under the Wise Papa Grant account. Uh, I've been using that account for probably uh, probably the four years that I've been playing Fifth Edition Dungeons and Dragons. Um, that's really how I got involved in tabletop RPGs online okay. uh, was in the discussion about that system. I've been playing uh, RPGs for over 20 years, but I never really participated in the online discussion until uh, a few years back. Um, some Twitch personalities found me at a game convention where I ran Dungeons and Dragons for over 100 people in two days. Wow. And yeah, it, it was a hoot, and uh, that's kind of how I ended up as the tabletop event uh, director for that convention. Now we run all kinds of games for all kinds of people, but that was my introduction into the online space. Wow. Do you ever sleep? No, never. <laughs> <laughs> Just hanging upside down, producing content through the long it, hours of the night. It's it's I've, I've been there. Um, the deadline rabbit is one I have to chase. It's interesting. Um, I'm starting to... Uh, find this uh, unique balance between being a designer, which is very different than being a, say, blogger or a uh, even a, a Twitch producer, and then thinking about uh, the game design process very critically and uh, trying to create good content for sale. It's a different uh, medium, but I also have to balance it against all my uh, productions, which is... Uh, where I spend a lot of time because of my background in film. I really enjoy the stink of the process of uh, putting together a show, casting the show, uh, making it something that's entertaining. And, uh, yeah, it's, it's a whole lot of fun. And you would be a good person to ask this question to. So before we get to A Knight's Tale, and don't worry, we're, we're going to cover every base of that of that film. You've been playing tabletop games, it sounds like, for two decades. The hobby has gone through quite a change and evolution during that time. And it seems like, I've read some different commentaries and articles about this, that there's sort of these two ways to play the game, if not multiple ways to play the game, but sort of the common tabletop experience, get together with friends and, and play the game. And then this other experience of watching people play the game. And you're certainly involved in that. And I wonder for you, how, if at all, is it different? 
there's a couple of considerations to think about how it's different. And I would say this. Um, in second edition Dungeons & Dragons, there was this idea of lonely fun, meaning they weren't really necessarily growing the player base, but they still needed to sell content. So they had this lonely fun of D&D where you could buy new campaign settings and read the content, uh, look at the artwork, and then buy another one when that comes out. So you ended up with all these different campaign settings, and the concept behind that was lonely fun. I think actual play... Uh, is a form of lonely fun where not everyone can play in a group and not everyone knows uh, what Dungeons and Dragons is. So the actual play experience is a way to participate in the game as an active participant because you're, you're, you're looking, you're watching, you're consuming, um, you're uh, potentially learning. Uh, I met a kid who was a uh, data scientist and he was a junior in high school. He's gone on. I think he's on his third year of college now. Uh, but he essentially reverse engineered Dungeons and Dragons and developed his own RPG by watching shows like uh, Critical Role. Now he could have just downloaded the basic rules for free, but you know his parents very very uh, they, they they policed his internet usage. They let him watch that show, but that that was about it. But he reverse engineered the game, so I think the main differences are. Uh, I would say the main differences are there's more opportunity to play with strangers in the show space than in a home game. Um, but I think it's comparable to organized play, but where organized play looks to standardize a play experience across as many people as possible, actual play is a break in standardization where you're trying to create a unique experience and differentiate yourself from every other show out there. So whereas the goal of, say, organized play is every dungeon master, a game master, will run a game using the same rule set and we'll have criteria and we're going to make sure only these items are allowed in it mm -hmm. and we're going to make sure you can only use these classes and the way you build your character, a show wants to differentiate itself from all the other shows out there. When I put together a show, it's very different than the way uh, Critical Role Studio or Geek and Sundry might uh, put it together and I played with all those guys you know those shows are out there you know where I'm running for Matthew Mercer or uh, Rudy Rutenberg from Maze Arcana or uh, anyone from the community but the show experience is different uh, different so I think that's what the main difference is a home game will always sort of be this private affair uh, shared between individuals at a table and there will be this uh, intimate presentation that is shared with just those in the room almost like a religious experience a um <laughs> at the high level and i actually i'm a filmmaker my thesis project was drew parallels between that uh but we won't go there uh organized play you're inviting everyone to play in a large communal experience in a public space where anyone can come out to play and the ceo of hasbro mentioned uh or the ceo of wizards of the coast mentioned that a lot of the growth wasn't just through the actual play live stream experience it came from hobby stores adopting adventures league and making sure there was a place people could come and play the game and there was that community aspect and it's a standardized process online it's also a community experience but you can be in a uh, table at the player you can interact with those playing as an observer on the side, almost as if you were uh, 
attending a uh, interactive theater event or a murder mystery dinner or anything of that sort where you are an active participant, the people playing, they might uh, call down to you. A, a really good example is a show like Whose Line Is It Anyways? Let's, you know, let's in, in, engage with the audience. And do you uh, find but, yourself designing? You mentioned like designing some games, designing streams. Do you find yourself designing with the audience in mind? Um, I would say yes, but I think uh, I always design with an audience in mind, and that comes from my background in film, where even the players themselves might be an audience. Um, okay. So I, I'm very, very, very. Um, I'm very, very conscientious about the what we'll call the sensory experience between uh, the individual that experiences uh, whatever's going on, be it play or be it uh, uh, observing a video or, a rec- or listening to a recording or touching a prop. I'm very, very sensitive to that individual's sensory experience as an active participant, as a player, or as an audience member. And I always design with that in mind. With that said, um, I have a, a pretty extensive background in performance. So I've put together games specifically designed with an audience in mind, an audience that will not create uh, fictional elements in a narrative an audience that will not have agency over what characters do or don't do, as well as uh, what we'll say, they're just there to enjoy the show, but also empowering the players to be uh, have the tools they need to tell the type of stories and create the kind of fiction that they find would be very entertaining and very engaging. Play has this concept of a feedback loop. I know I've said a lot, but I'm going to finish this thought. No, please. Yeah. Where if you perform X, then Y occurs, and many games are designed so that Y will incentivize you to do X again. Uh, Dungeons & Dragons is a good example. You fight monsters, you get experience, which unlocks new abilities that allows you to defeat more monsters. Um, It's very behavioral that way, yes. Yes, and Cypher System the same way. You use the experience for different things. What that game does is it invites you to uh, have dramatic moments. The dramatic moments will award you an experience point that you can use for five or six different things, uh, as well as award an experience point that you get to choose as a player. You get to give experience to someone else at the table just to help them out later on. And so it incentivizes you to engage in dramatic moments that will make the game very spicy, very juicy, and so on and trade it. So what I try to do, where the audience member is kind of this silent player, I'm trying to incentivize them where they will come and participate in X or view X as you mentioned, behavioral, Y will incur. Hopefully Y is they enjoy the show or they lean forward in their seats or uh, they draw fan art or they subscribe to a channel or uh, donate to a charity. You're and looking then, to activate people. Yes, 100%. And so, and likewise, after that activation, they're feeling like they'd want to watch the show again. And I've designed games with that idea in mind where the sole purpose was I was like, well, I want to run a game that's full of sort of this uh, overly dramatic 
uh, we'll call it the anime aesthetic. I uh, cast professional actors and role players that I've played with for a long time. And uh, it was designed to be a show, and it was very successful. Um, and a lot of people uh, got their hands on that rule set that I authored from the ground up. And it was specifically designed, uh, one, to incentivize the players to participate in a game that would be dramatic. So we're not just winging it. We're not, we're not TV writers that have to come up with a story. The play will generate an interesting story because of the way the game's designed. You will do X, which will do Y. Likewise, the audience member will do X, which will do y, uh, inform Y, and it will go in this loop on both sides as audience and player. So that's kind of some uh, who knows what uh, media theory and uh, <laughs> game design theory, right. but it's – it's it's my job now uh, to figure this stuff out and try to make it work. Well, and you described a few minutes ago, you know, D and D role playing games as this religious experience for people. And, and speaking of religious experiences, A Knight's Tale. When did you first see the movie? In theaters, May two thousand one. I was a senior in high school. I watched it with my mother, um, and my the the my most vivid memory of the movie outside of enjoying the whole thing, um, was the moment my mother started crying in the theater. Uh, we were probably seven rows back. I, I still remember she starts crying when William is knighted uh, by Prince Edward. And uh, Yeah, spoiler alert, everyone. We're going spoilers. to be spoiling a knight's tale from 2001, yes. Yes, it, <laughs> I, it's just I remember, and then a few years later, I, I got a copy of Knight's Tale. My mom was like, nah, I didn't like that movie. But I was like, you traitor. You did like this movie. I was there with you. You really liked it. And then once I put it on again and, you know, the uh, rock music starts to play, yes. uh, she was like, oh, it's this movie. I love this movie. And I was like, yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do indeed. Yeah, I saw it also May 2001. I remember seeing the trailers and just thinking that looks like something I'd really enjoy. I need to see that. And at the time, a bit older than you, I was in graduate school and in a long-term relationship. So I was living in Iowa, like central Iowa. My girlfriend at the time, who's now my wife, uh, was living about five, five and a half hours away up in Duluth, Minnesota. And I had drove that five hours to spend the weekend with her. And one of the things I wanted to do was go see this movie, which in retrospect seems a little silly. Um, probably should have made more time to just actually have a conversation with her than seeing a movie. Uh, so we went to see the movie and I also remember that it was May and me being from the East coast thinking, Oh, well it's kind of summer. It'll be warm. And in Duluth, it was 40 degrees. <laughs> I was not prepared for that. I had like packed shorts, which is something my wife still teases me about. Um, but we saw the movie and I loved it. And she was like, yeah, it was okay. It was all right. Um, but I just really thoroughly enjoyed it. And then when the DVD came out, I just consumed that and listened to the commentary all the time. Why did it hit a nerve with you that you still are willing to talk about it for no, quite a yeah. bit, 20 years later, almost? All my life, I've sort of had this uh, idealized fantasy in my head about knights uh, fairy tales, um, the olden days, chivalry, uh, none of it lines up with uh, history. Uh, I've studied history and I've uh, looked at history and I've played historical games. Um, but there's sort of this fantastical uh, quality 
to the story where it's a very uh, 21st century story as we entered into the 21st century where it's taking a slightly more egalitarian view. It's uh, it was introducing elements into their narrative that I was studying at the time. You know, as a senior in high school, uh, we were studying the Canterbury Tales. Sure. And sure enough, there was a movie and characters from uh, Chaucer were chaucer's work were right in there as well as jeffrey chaucer himself yes um, we're, we're gonna get to him yes yeah heath heath ledger was a very new actor and uh he he hadn't really been seen around a lot uh i think he was filming the patriot at the same time that he ended up getting cast in this surprise and, and i've worked as a casting director in hollywood and he got cast simply by uh his performances in the rushes like the uh we haven't even edited the movie of the patriot and uh, they they cast him, and I think it's a very uh, there's sort of a lack of cynicism in the story, uh, as well as you know I, I've been a classic rock fan my my entire life. You know, road trips across the country listening to Queen. Uh, I performed as uh, David Bowie uh, three different occasions in high school, uh, doing uh, reenacting performance yes. either as Ziggy Stardust or the Thin White Duke. So yes, so it, it it's it just. It hit all those notes, and um, I've also uh, competed as a semi-professional athlete in two different sports. Uh, Was one I, of them jousting? No, but it, oh. it's uh, <laughs> only in the skate or die video game. But I, uh, it's hey, one of those things. Shout out the skate or die, nice. Yeah, so you don't see in this movie they're not going to war. They're not like invading villages and burning the villages down. It's a sports movie about sports. And they're competing in a sport, and that's kind of what it revolves around. But it, it begs the question, well, who's allowed to participate in a sport? Who's allowed to watch a sport? And also understand sports aren't the most important thing. And uh, you might be good at a sport, uh, but the world's going to say it doesn't want to watch you playing that. But there's going to be other people uh, that are going to create opportunities for you to uh, reach your full potential and there was just so much good in the film that, uh, you know, it just really touched me. I mean, I I had my heart broken probably two weeks before it came out. And then I went and I saw it and I just felt a big like catharsis. And I was like, that's 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 what I'm going through. You know, I'm going through these tough times Um but, you know, you can still win the world championship or maybe not even win the world championship. William doesn't win every competition he competes in either. Uh, you know, spoilers, he, he loses some of them and it's hard. And sometimes he loses to prove a point. Um, so the sports are what we'd call the subject. But then there's that overtone, that that sense that we all feel about this grander narrative. Uh, it's not just about knights and armor. um it's it's about finding yourself through uh, communal activities such as uh, competitive sports or writing poetry together or building relationships, which which happens. For me, it had just a lot of elements that were just incredibly entertaining. So it's it's very well acted. We'll, we'll get to the cast here in a moment. Um, like there's, I think I've said this in other podcasts, but other about other movies is that it just seems like when you're watching a movie, you can tell when people are really trying and really into what they're trying to portray on screen. And it feels like the people who are in, cast in this movie are 
kind of enjoying the process and are attempting to do something with with their characters. It doesn't seem like anyone's really mailing it in in this movie. There's real there's moments that are hilarious. There's very kind of serious moments between uh, some actors at times. There's a fantastic villain in the movie who I had years and years later when I was playing fourth edition, I had this kind of homebrew campaign I was putting together and I had this character. I was like, oh, I want this person to sort of seem like a good guy and it'll turn out that he's actually working against the party. And I was thinking of a name. I was like, oh, I'll name him Adamar because that's this movie I enjoy and no one really cares about it. So I named him that. And immediately everyone at the table was like, oh, he's a bad guy. It's a knight's tale. I was like, oh, yeah. that, that was a bad idea. So I learned never to do that again. Don't name characters after uh, movie characters. Um, but he's just phenomenal in the movie. There's this whole father-son part of the film that is just struck me as as pretty quite emotional i i lost my father at a long, young age so i think any movie that kind of touches on that subject matter it's it will kind of hit me in a, in a in the heartstrings and it's just it's it's funny it's very rewatchable the use of music is great and i think one of the reasons that the movie sort of struggled box office wise is that a lot of the critics just panned the music choices where they had said like well you know, Queen didn't exist back in these times, so this movie's dumb. Neither did orchestras. Right. And it, it was odd. And if you listen to the commentary, it's the commentary is very entertaining. It's the director and, and Paul Bettany, who plays Chaucer, and uh, Brian Helgeland, I want to get his name correct. Um, so the director and one of the actors, and just throughout, there's this annoyance of, yeah, you know, I didn't know that Queen didn't didn't exist back then. No one told me. You would think with all the people at the movie studio, they would have let me know. They really let me down. So there's all these kind of snarky jokes about that throughout the commentary. Um, and yeah. I just totally enjoyed the movie and it continues to be a guilty pleasure. He made some additional comments about that in future interviews as well. He talked about how um, when people uh, back then listened to music of the time, they really enjoyed it and it moved them. However, he observed that many audiences, when they watch a movie that takes place in the 13th or 14th century and they're playing traditional music, uh, the movie audience is not moved uh, because they are displaced from that time and that music. However, if he played music that would be very familiar to them, music that they would hear at a sporting event they, in fact, would be moved, and I certainly was. I thought that was a clever uh, directorial decision in order to engage the audience by manipulating the fiction uh, to have it to appeal to the people who are watching. Um, it, it's a very clever choice. So, so we'll jump around a little bit. We have categories. We had sent each other some, some talking points ahead of time. So this is structured, folks. We're not just winging it here. Um, Best use of music for you for you in the film. Uh, it's got to be the intro when they play "We Will Rock You," because like I literally and there's there's good ones, but I literally felt just all the hairs on my body start to stand up when I was in the theater, 
and it, to this day I can't watch it or listen to We Will Rock You. As soon as the guitar solo hits, and you know they have this crane shot, it goes up. It's just perfect. It's just perfect, and it's like, oh, yeah, I'm here for this. Let's get it on. Yeah. For me, the the, the music moment that continues to resonate with me is golden years so during the scene where william is invited to this fancy dinner party and uh adamar puts him on the spot and tries to embarrass him by saying like oh show us a dance from your homeland and will's out of his depth he's sort of clueless um jocelyn uh who's uh, played by Shannon Sossman comes over and starts to help him out. And then you hear Bowie in the background real faint. Then about 10, 15 seconds goes by. Uh, Will starts to feel more comfortable, starts just getting into this dance and then golden years plays. It's, it turns into this scene out of footloose where the entire party is dancing around Will and Jocelyn and Adamar is, losing his mind because he tried to embarrass him but now like he's getting over with the audience and everyone's like really excited about it so it's like he's getting hot on their collar he has to step out of the room because he's so upset it's just brilliant and i was just listening to the commentary this week and they had another song in mind and heath ledger had said no i have a better idea and they actually had to get permission from bowie himself it was like sure go ahead and use it uh which again just sort of adds to the whole Kind of mystique of this film that it was Heath Ledger's idea to put that song in the movie. Um, so anytime I hear that song, I immediately think of this movie. Yeah, it, it's uh, and show us a dance from Gelderland, you know, Adamar right. says, and and I you kind of feel bad for uh, William as he's just kind of like, well, I'll uh, and, you know, a really good scene too is right before that. It's not really a use of music, but just Chaucer setting the beat, banging right. the stick, and teaching them how to dance. Yeah, it's... Watt punches them, and he's like, you still dance. Like, you know, he's just, like, making fun of them. Oh, man, what a nicely put-together movie, because it's just well, so good. They sit with those awkward moments, and there's, even in the background, the the characters who aren't, like, really central in the scene, like, they're, they're doing stuff. They're doing really interesting stuff, like reacting... Uh, like great facial expressions if they're exasperated or embarrassed. Um, and even that scene with, with Will the dance hall, it lingers on him being uncomfortable almost too long, but not quite. It's like you just feel your skin crawling like, oh, this is not going well for him. No. And you know, Jocelyn came to his uh, rescue. And I think that's uh, one of the themes of the film, at least unofficially, is friends coming to each other's rescue. Like throughout at all levels and stations of life, uh, if you're friends and you care about each other from when uh, William's put in the stocks and, you know, uh, his friends will stand to, to defend him if they have to. Or when he's dancing and Jocelyn will, uh, as it's falling apart, will come up and dance with him or um, the world championships are underway. Will's been found out. He won't turn away, uh, but he will get knighted in the process and be allowed uh, to compete by a friend. Um, it, yeah, it's there's a, really there's nice another, Yeah, there's another moment where the first time Will faces Adamar at the joust, like he gets a couple hits in, but then Adamar flat out knocks him out. And yeah. Watt tries to scale the jousting barrier to go at Adamar, and 
uh, Chaucer comes in and pushes him out of the way because obviously if he did that, he'd probably be locked up or hung or something. So it's the same idea of like taking care of your friends, keeping them out of trouble. Um, it's definitely a theme throughout throughout the movie. It brings up, I think the the cast is quite loaded. It's factoring out Heath Ledger, who will devote some time to him specifically. Um, but this was Paul Bettany's, I think, first major American film release, and he's been a, a ton in a ton of stuff since that time, uh, including most notably playing Vision in. The Marvel Cinematic Universe, but he's been in other films as well. Um, what are your thoughts about the the surrounding cast members? I think it's and it's interesting to see what what they all go on to do as well. Like uh, I mean, say Roland goes on to play Robert Baratheon in Game of right. Thrones, right? Yeah, it's a. Uh, I I think it's one of those films where at the time, uh, if I was a producer. I'd be very nervous because I'd be it, it was similar when LA Confidential was put together in 97 it's like where are our stars you know where are our stars to put in this movie this is hard we got a bunch of character actors and they're from all over the the world and can and we LA pull this Confidential off has the same writer correct yes yeah. uh i yeah, the um it, it on this one um uh Brian uh Helgeland yeah. uh, wrote and directed. Right. Uh, and uh, so it has the same writer, but it's one of those ideas is casting. It's like, this is very, very, very uh, difficult to put this together where we're going to just start bringing in people that haven't necessarily had uh, very major roles yet. Um, at least not for in front of American audiences, nothing, you know, huge um, at the time. And you got to remember like, Yes, the Patriot came out a year before, but it was in production. So Heath Ledger wasn't, and he was a you know a secondary character in the Patriot, at least by my standards. And uh, you have, but you're able to bring together very, very, very talented actors, actors that can perform a lot of different roles, and just place them in this ensemble, in this world, and just make it come together so well and i think something that really helps the movie is even even as we talked about how friends came to each other's rescue uh i think the actors in conjunction with the director it's one of those where their performances all enhanced each other's um yeah from laura fraser playing the uh the blacksmith uh and then she was in breaking bad better call yep. saul I, and I remember when I first saw her show up in Reagan, I was like, hey, I know her. And she's mm -hmm. been in a ton of other stuff. But like a lot of I think the majority of these actors pop up in these significant franchises 10 to 15 years later. Um, Alan Tunick was in Firefly shortly thereafter. He's been in Star Wars. He's been in other stuff. Um, yeah, it it's I think there's even a meme where it shows a picture of. It's like the Joker, Robert Baratheon, and Vision are all in a Knight's Tale or something like that. Yeah, yeah. It's uh, it's really nice to see when young actors that maybe haven't gotten a chance to perform on a very big stage uh, get an opportunity to come together and put on a really, really, really good show. And I think it's important to note 
that this movie is controversial in a sense that you'll never find a consensus among everyone uh, exactly where the movie falls in a rating. Meaning, you know, on Rotten Tomatoes, it might be a little lower than on IMDb, where it'll be higher. Uh, Google reviews, it'll be exceedingly high. Uh, Cinema legends like Roger Ebert gave it three stars and was like, you know what? This was a great movie, and it was a breath of fresh air. And I shouldn't be applauding that they're using Queen in the soundtrack. But you know what? I smiled, and I laughed, and I loved it. Uh, so it's one of those movies where, uh, you know, I'm definitely one of those individuals that love it and uh, lean into uh, all of its good qualities. And one of the actors, uh, actresses that we briefly mentioned and who did not really go on to – be in major film franchise. Shannon Sussman? Yes. Uh, which I described as the sort of show notes ahead of the show as the meteor, also known as Shannon Sussman. Although I was thinking today, maybe the comet would be a better way to phrase it because she's wonderful in mm-hmm. this movie. And then she was in, I think, 40 Days and 40 Nights or some other. She's in a couple other movies kind of shortly thereafter. And then doing a little research, she had a child sort of went away for a while, then was in some horror and other indie flicks. Um, I think maybe has been in some shows here and there. Uh, But I remember the first time seeing the movie and she was up on screen and just not only is she gorgeous, but like she does a really good job with that part. Just a silly girl, aren't you? Better a silly girl with a flower than a silly boy with a horse and a stick. And just a you know beautiful, beautiful actress who uh, plays uh, the role of uh, a lady of the court extremely well, as as well as um, you know she she brought something hip to the movie as well, and she was a strong character. Um, she was a poetic character and an artistic character. Um, not and, exactly a, a damsel in distress by any means. I mean, she, not at all. She had a an edge and a, a funness, which is a terrible word to use. But I mean, she was really interesting. It wasn't just this one dimensional character. Yeah, very good uh, lead across from uh, a young Heath Ledger as well. And I think it was great that um, you know she may not have gone on to you know she's she's sort of. Uh, Retired, I believe, in 2016, more or less. But you know, she's a good, good, at, good performer, and you know she can be very proud of this performance. And well, it was not interesting every because I think she can. was like a dancer or a DJ or something, and just kind of fell into accident or into acting by accident in some ways. Like I don't know, it was like I remember that story back 20 years ago, trying to figure out like who is this person. Um, so just a really interesting background. Yeah, that's it. I always like it when a diverse performer uh, just kind of is multi-talented and moves through different creative spaces and has success in uh, all all of those spaces. It's uh, you know, it was a very very. Uh, uh, I, w- I will add this though. Okay, so I, I found something. A note about her. She does a voice in a cartoon uh, that's my favorite animated series, Over the Garden Wall, from 2014. 
Okay. And she voices a character across from Elijah Wood in it. So I think that's of note because it's a very memorable uh, uh, episode because it's her, Elijah Wood, and Tim Curry that are the leads. Oh, nice. And an animated series. Yeah, so think about that cast. So even if uh, she might not have the, the biggest resume in the world, she definitely has a top-notch, you know, a, A-list resume. Um, and not many performers in the world can say – yeah, I was a lead across Heath Ledger, you know, as his career started. And she she can. And held her own, no doubt. Yeah, 100%. In fact, she probably, you know, it's debatable. I, I think it's, they all gave strong performances. Like, they all gave really good performances. Like, I liked Heath Ledger infinitely better in A Knight's Tale than in The Patriot. I think a lot of that has to do is, you know, not to knock The Patriot – but um, it's just uh, I think the level of directing in a Knight's Tale is more more whole because sometimes when you have the it's a writer director that really has a clear vision, um, and of course Heath got to be a lead, which is very uh, you know more opportunities there. And it is I mean bringing up Heath Ledger, it is sad watching this film and, and certainly listening to the commentary track as well as they, they talk about Heath Ledger, you know, well before he, he died, uh, just kind of talking about his spirit and his energy and his performance and, and watching him as a, as a young man, really, really acting, really uh, working hard and trying to bring this, this movie to life. Uh, there's just a, there's a bitter sweetness to it. It's, it's different than watching a dark night where, I mean, that's a different kind of sadness and that was much closer to his death. This is, you know, a good, what, seven years before that movie came out. So it's, um, it's like this time capsule that feels a little, almost kind of voyeuristic to, to listen to people who knew him well, just casually talking about him. It's, that kind of time jumping is always, uh, I wouldn't say unsettling. It's just intriguing to me. I don't know. What are your, what are your thoughts? I, I just think, you know, it, it's, it, it's a tragedy when I think about Heath Ledger cause he died. I mean, he'd be a few years older than me, not many years older than me. We, we would have been in, in school together if we lived in the same city. Um, and he's someone I, I unfortunately did not have the opportunity to work with in the film industry, but I've worked with people who did, um, and they always spoke very highly of Heath and he just died so young, right? He, he hadn't even hit 30 years old and I, it's, you know, it's a little hard to talk about too, uh, just because it's, you, you work on these movies and they absorb so much of your life and you put so much into it. Um, as a performer though, watching him as a, a young man in a knight's tale, he, if he was given an opportunity to actually compete in a world championship jousting tournament, I think Keith would have put his all into it as, you know, he'd put as much effort into it as he did in his uh, acting performance. And uh, sometimes it's hard because when people become uh, very, very large and well-known in uh, media and, you know, pot shots are taken at him, you know, he was just so young. You know, he was 28 years old. What did I know when I was 28 years old, right? Not, sure. not a lot. And so uh, 
I really think watching this this performance in a night tale to me, um, really what it did is it launched his career and it, it allowed him to help create a bunch of memories across a variety of genres, tackle a number of themes. And uh, what I also appreciated is this movie shows his diversity to play uh, the, the pretty boy, heartthrob, beautiful, uh, romantic, strong-willed knight. Uh, and then the antithesis of that in later movies like The Dark Knight, where he can perform essentially – uh, Tom Waits on crack cocaine, right? right. <laughs> you know, it's, yeah. He had he had range to yes. to put it mildly, and even within this film, there's moments where he's this comedic goofball, where is like just sort of wildly throwing his arms around or like rolling his eyes, making really these expressive faces, like almost like hamming it up. Um, but then there's these other moments, like there's a scene after, because uh, it's it, in the movie, Chaucer has a gambling problem. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Chaucer lies to them at first, gambles a bunch of money away, and literally loses the clothes off his back. And he's standing there, and the, uh, referencing the Canterbury Tales, the, uh, the tax collectors are getting ready to, to take a pound of flesh off of him unless Will pays back the money, Heath Ledger's character pays back the money. And it's played very seriously where Heath Ledger kind of asks the people who are after Chaucer, you know, what are you going to do with him? And he just stares at Chaucer and gives him this look of, I could let you, I could leave you behind. Like you've made this mistake. I could leave you behind. And it's played very seriously by both by all the actors involved, and then he you know shows compassion and brings Chaucer back back into the fold into the group and says he'll he'll cover the debt. Um, so there's there's moments like that. There's certainly the just the kind of the rocky aspect of the movie where there's this athletic uh, competition component. He has a very physical performance. Um, he's just a lot of fun. I think that's one of the things that's infectious about this movie is you want to hang with these people. Like you want to go on the road and go watch jousting tournaments with these folks. It just seems like a blast. Yeah. A hundred percent. I, you know, I, uh, I worked, uh, in as an athlete and a performer in with film, you know, it's kind of like running off and joining the circus, right? It's, it's one of those things where yeah. you end up living that, that life. And, I think there's a certain degree of honesty in the film, even if it's fantastical. It's a uh, it's an inarticulate truth where, you know, it's a made up story. And, you know, supposedly it takes place during that year. We don't have Chaucer's life recorded. That's how he ends up there. And uh, it's filled with a, a lot of uh, a lot of nonsense from, you know, our generation. But. Uh, but yeah, I would hang with these these folks, and you know, I'd compete with them and against them, uh, and you know, I would, you know, I would, I'd party with them, and you know, I liked the same music as them. Apparently, um, yeah. In something we should talk about too, a little bit about the uh, uh, competitive and we'd hang with them out aspect. I mean, gosh darn it, Chaucer when he gets. The crowds riled, you know, some of it based on the way John Lennon would, you know, get get uh, people 
uh, ready to rock at various events. Um, well, and I think you have an interest in this too. It was it's professional wrestling. Yes, it's and that that was one of one of the segment ideas. I just I just simply wrote to you, Chaucer, Chaucer, Chaucer. And so, without further gilding the lily, and with no more ado, I give to you the seeker of serenity, the protector of Italian virginity, the enforcer of our Lord God, the one, the only, Sir Ulrich von Lichtenstein! So, this is a good time as any. He's amazing. He is just flat out steals every scene he's in and his heralding of of Will, like those scenes are so much fun. It it yeah, it informs so I I've worked a few matches as a professional wrestler. I was mostly known for being a better mouth than worker. I mean, yeah, I had sustained a lot of injuries. So you and got mic skills, which is good. I have mic skills and there is a plethora of clips on Twitch of me cutting promos and uh, hyping shows, and it's a very entertaining thing. I'm 100% copying Chaucer from A Knight's Tale. It's nice. Secrets Out. So there's other people that have influenced me, Dusty Rhodes, Ric Flair, things like that. It's 100% Chaucer, though, because that's uh, – I want to captivate people like that, and I want to wax poetically like that, and I also want the audience to get up and cheer and be moved, regardless of their station in life. I want uh, the king and queen to cheer. I also want uh, – someone eating a bowl of cereal watching my shows as they've gotten home from school i want everyone to feel like they're participating in the celebration and i want them to feel something and i want them to cheer when the hero wins and i want them to boo when the villain takes advantage and you know it's all pro wrestling but it's also i patterned myself after chaucer from a knight's tale it's very informative to my performance yeah and his and i just watched it uh, this week just to kind of refresh my memory, it had been some time since I watched the movie, and I had forgotten some of the little bits of the, his different uh, hyping of the of uh, William throughout <laughs> throughout the movie. There's so many like sentences or rhymes that are like it just laugh out loud funny. The and protector he, of Italian virginity. Right. <laughs> My favorite was it's after Will wins uh, the sword. It's kind of one of the earlier moments in the film. It's actually, I think, after, right after he um, saves Chaucer from the uh, tax collector or whatever. He's like, Chaucer's just screaming. Just like the crowd has no idea what he's talking about. He, it's like they've never seen anything like this before, this kind of showmanship. And he's just screaming. He's like, we walk in the garden of his turbulence. <laughs> Dead silence. And then uh, Roland, uh, Robert Baratheon, for you folks who uh, don't know his, his name, he's like, yeah. And the crowd starts cheering. And apparently in the commentary, they say that was an ad lib because when Chaucer gave us that speech, all the extras. They're don't Czechoslovakian. Speak, yeah, they, they don't speak English. so They have no idea what they're supposed to do. So the actors were like literally looking around as like what's going on and rolling off screen had like yelled so the crowd would yell. So they had to go back and shoot that close up of him doing it. Which again just adds to like my enjoyment of the film, like those little whimsical moments of like this wasn't meant to happen, but it plays perfectly. Um it's just so, so good. 
Yeah, it's a um, a very uh, it, and I've done a lot of directing backgrounds and things like that. And when there's a language barrier, it's hard. But uh, it makes the scene, I think. And there's a there's a number of shots in there. I mean, uh, they start the movie with, for all intents and purposes, a, a camera test. So uh, with, uh, Heath Ledger's stunt double was jousting and something went wrong. He got clocked and knocked unconscious. And the yeah. movie starts with the shot from like the camera test of his stunt double getting unseated and KO'd on the horse. They were just like, this shot tells a very brutal, brutal story of, uh, you know, how this, how this, uh, sport is going to go. Um, but it's interesting. It was completely accidental, but it's in, it's in the movie um, as the opening, just a knight getting unseated. Yeah, he, he mentions that. He's like, yeah, the poor guy got knocked out, and I just decided I have to use that shot. I have to find a way to put it in the movie. <laughs> you had sent me a couple of uh, bits, and, and one of them was titled The Art Throb, Approaching a Knight's Tale Using the Obsessive Aesthetic Matrix. Yes. You said you said you would explain that to me. Um, so I don't know where you're going with this. I'm excited, okay. I'm excited to find out. Yeah. Go ahead. So my background is as a cinematicist. I know a lot about filmmaking, have a lot of degrees in it. I practiced in Hollywood for a long time. Uh, I've had essays published in a number of uh, collections on art and philosophy. Um, and my mentor, Robert Edgar, uh, talked about how when we approach any sensory experience, film being one, um, what we do is the first thing that we do is who we are is going to impact how we perceive that experience. You know, me, I would have been a kid about Will's age when I watched the movie and I, I was having my heart broken and I was competing in sports Um and being told, you know, I, I'm not allowed to compete in certain events and things like that. So who I was as a person caused the movie to resonate with me, as well as being, you know, a poet and an artist and things like that, like some of the other characters. So who I was really enhanced my experience of the movie or uh, gave me a different appreciation for some of the narrative. Then uh, so that's the intrinsic domain. Then after we go through that, who we are and how that informs our experience uh, we talk about the world around us. Knight's Tale, watching it in a theater, it was a pre-9-11 world. Uh, it was a different time in this country, uh, in the United States of America. And um, at the time it came out, a lot of movies were focusing on uh, violence, and they were ultra-violent. And a Knight's Tale, even though it's uh, uh, competitive athletics, it's combat sports – it's not necessarily a pr particularly brutal movie. Uh, I think there's like a few drops of blood throughout the entire flick. Yeah. And, um, you know, a couple concussions, a few drops of blood, very little else. Um, and it's it slapstick almost in, in its approach to, to the physical. Uh, so it's, it's a very, um, you know, it's a very almost – out of place in the rest of cinema history at the time that it came out. Very different, almost a throwback to a traditional movie uh, like The Princess Bride or something else. Um, then uh, after that, we look at the rest of the world around us, what was going on in the world, what was going on politically, uh, how technology was being developed. Uh, you know, there's product uh, 
plunges, like the uh, uh, Nike logo being placed on a suit of armor. There's yeah. little things like that in the movie that uh, cause us to respond a certain way. And it's it specifically, it's why they chose the music they chose, because they knew the music would resonate with audiences that watched it. Then the lastly... Uh, you move from extrinsic domain, the world around us, aesthetic teleology, all these things. Uh, you know, as I stick my nose in the air with my uh, snooty filmness, but I, I have many leather-bound books. Yes, <laughs> you, it's uh, we move to um, the generative domain. I'm going to take this experience that I had, what this movie meant to me, this thing that was put together, or this game that I played, um, or this music that I listened to. And I'm going to use it to repurpose it and make new art. And when I look at uh, – there was a thread that I made on Twitter today. That I was just running through a list of games from Pendragon to Dungeons & Dragons to In Dreaming Avalon to The King is Dead to Unrestful Hearts in the Garden of Glory, which I designed myself, a cipher system. Just moving through all these different games to tell stories that are very similar to the story that's told in a knight's tale and how I can help people create their own stories where they can either be the hero or the villain and play the game to find out what happens and participate uh, in that kind of sensory experience, maybe not a movie. Um, so, yeah, that's sort of the art throb. So, you know, we talked about it a little bit at the beginning. Where were we in the world when we watched it? What were we doing? Why did it have an impact on us the way that it did? And then... What else was going on in the world? And then have we used this experience of a knight's tale to create new experiences for other people? Has it informed our own work, either professionally or privately, in our uh, lives with our friends, in our lives with our families, in our lives with people that don't even know us? I know it most certainly has for me, uh, given that uh, I run a show every other Monday called Half Sick of Shadows, where it's all about these romantic night stories. Uh, and we play almost a different game every week, but it's the same campaign world. And we pick the right game to tell the story that would happen that week in the show. Um, so, yeah. How has it impacted you? Yeah, no, all that's that's fascinating. There's so much to unpack there. Mm -hmm. um, it's interesting how you talk about how it informs your work that even now, going forward, where you're, you're creating these shows and you're using similar themes um in in you know modern play you know 18 or so years later uh, i just like to think that we're getting the the jump on the 20th anniversary push that this movie's going to get mm -hmm. in 2021 so <laughs> we're we're uh we're going to start a trend um I, I think how maybe informed me as as you were talking i was thinking about again i was still in my education kind of early in my, my PhD career, uh, which was, you know, five years in graduate school. So it's still kind of hits me at a time where I was coming of age, even though I was in my twenties by then, um, after college. So a lot of the themes in the movie of kind of figuring out who you are, who are your friends, creating those bonds, uh, you know, finding a relationship, making that work. Um, you know, a lot of films touch on those themes. I think it just also resonated with me because I always enjoyed things like Dungeons and Dragons and medieval times. And even remember as a young child reading a Connecticut Yankee in King Arthur's Court. I just always liked that time period. But even like you said, like historically, that time period was awful. But 
as in your head you think of it as this you know fairy tale land um but i i really think this idea of celebrating each other and for your kind of the not only the good things you have about you but even just kind of recognizing someone you care about recognizing their fall flaws embracing that and still kind of boosting them up and there's a lot of moments in the film where that happens you were talking about that earlier and i think about my time in graduate school where i had three other roommates we were all in the same program and you know we got up to a certain amount of hijinks while also <laughs> going through our you know professional education um and I made a point of basically creating a newsletter for our apartment that was based on The Onion, but it was like writing stories about my roommates to to celebrate some aspect of them and to really exaggerate it and take it in a funny direction. Um, and I don't know if I can link that to Chaucer doing his bits in a night in a Knight's Tale, but it's the thing that came to mind as you were talking about that of like how did it influence your perspective. Um, I think that sort of professional wrestling mentality of, you know, putting on a show, getting a reaction, getting people involved, getting people activated. Um, I think that, you know, continues to resonate with me. And even now I watched the movie this week and there's some other pretty heavy stuff going on in my life to reference a back to the future quote um, that, I can I can watch this movie and it just sort of transports me to this really really happy place of simplicity and I find that valuable you know whatever else you may think about this film I find that incredibly meaningful Yeah 100% it's um you know I think as we reduce all the imagery sort of in these uh night stories, these fairy stories, these uh, tales of swords and valor and songs and legends. And we kind of reduce it down to just bare bones abstract. Um, the movie was very popular in Brazil. And shortly after it came out, I moved to South America and I lived there for a long time. And people in Brazil, the movie really resonated with them as well. And they were, you know, they're very... Uh, they didn't have, you know, the same books on Arthurian legends uh, that I had when I grew up. They didn't have the same access to media. Very difficult for them to even get to a movie theaters. Mm -hmm. But for them, they told me the key elements, they were just like, well, it's just the type of story it is about friends and family and, you know, uh, making your father proud and letting your father hear, you know, the good things that you've achieved. And maybe he never gets that opportunity, but you know, you still try your best and do your best. And, uh, I think the movie had a good impact, you know, cross culturally, as you can tell these sort of night stories and kind of, uh, divorce yourself from the actual history, but just think about the message there. And, focus on how you can use these stories of uh, competition and love and friendship and then apply it to other aspects. And it's, it's a simple story that follows, you know, kind of this traditional uh, coming of age 
uh, Prince and the Popper, you know, draws inspiration from, you know, dozens of sources, but it really delivers on sort of those themes that uh, have lasted for, you know, hundreds, if not that, you know, hundreds of years coming out of uh, history and then into fiction. Well, and you mentioned the film The Princess Bride uh, earlier on during our conversation, and, and these two films always sort of link together in my mind in a way. I mean, The, the Princess Bride is this, this classic that I think it's it's hard to run into somebody who's like, I hate that movie. <laughs> I've, I've yet to meet that person. Um, so The Princess Bride is something everyone respects and adores, and A Night's Tale has certainly not reached that that same level and not that i think that it should but why do you think it is remains this to me this overlooked movie that just people like myself and you like are really giddy about and other people are like what <laughs> i think the amount of cynicism that entered the world in 2001 before the end of it uh, kind of uh kind of created a cultural change that prevented it from having as much success as possible. And now the princess bride wasn't a huge box office success either. And it was something that caught on as home video uh, grew. I think the fact that we were in between a technology shift between VHS and DVD kind of caught onto it. Um, with that said as well, um, I, I think, I think there's not a timelessness to a knight's tale as far as, uh, it's actual uh, cinematic elements, you know, using classic rock and classic rock is always good, but it's not going to resonate with everyone. I think I think it, there was just a cultural shift that occurred that didn't happen during the years uh, that A Princess Bride came out in, in our nation. I mean, and that's probably debatable, but it's also one of those things. It's like, I love this movie so much, and I don't know why everyone wouldn't love it. And the fact that my own mother, which I referenced earlier, said, oh, I hated that movie. And it's like, right. but she didn't. She didn't hate that movie. But for she she convinced herself that she did. And I don't know why to this day. It's, you know, it's one of those things where, Maybe people just didn't want to give it a chance. Maybe they, they didn't like the young actor. Maybe uh, – who knows, right? What, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean it was before the internet became the internet. <laughs> but I do think there there was this group think about the movie, where it, whether it was kind of inspired by critics who thought the music was sort of silly and just found the whole movie frivolous. And there were a lot of things that – I think they even talk about this in the commentary where the director would edit scenes and would show them to the cast and the crew. And he said it took a little while for everyone to figure out this is the movie we're making. I think, you know, on the script, maybe it just didn't translate into the scenes right away. So I think as an audience member, if you don't go in it with this open mind of like, hey, I'm just going to enjoy this, have a lot of fun with it. Um, I, I think that's cynicism is easy to, to, to creep in. Um, and yeah, I don't really, I can't, I can't speak for other people about why they, they don't enjoy it. It is, it is interesting having something because there's a lot of things that I love that other people love as well. Like I'm a big star Wars nerd. I'm a, like Harry Potter. I like Lord of the Rings. Like that stuff for the most part is really embraced by the same groups of people. Um, so it's interesting to have 
a movie like this or a piece of art like this where I really enjoy it and some of those same people that overlap in those other areas are like, nah, no, that movie's garbage. <laughs> what do you mean? Well, <laughs> like, I don't want to, I don't want to fight the person. It's just, it's just interesting that I feel so strongly about this. That seems to hit all these elements that are important to me and like-minded folks don't have that Venn diagram overlap the same way I do, which I just think is interesting. Mm-hmm. It's uh Okay, we talked about earlier, I, I talked about how the intrinsic uh, qualities of who we are will also inform our experience and the way we observe it, you know, and I I was described in high school, if they picked a word to describe me, it was night with a K, and uh, I, was, I was glad that they always sort of, you know, picked that, and then Right at that age, you know, the movie came out for me, and so it was. It was great to see a movie for me and the other knights out there, uh, Serene McKellen and Elton John, and you know, there's a bunch of us knights around. I'm just kidding. Um, yes. Yeah. <laughs> one of the other things you mentioned, um, and I, I'm curious because I think this ties in a little bit to one of the other topics I wanted to get to, is sort of what can be taken from this movie and and apply to. To role-playing games, which you've touched on a bit uh, here and there, uh, but you talked about lean-forward moments and scenes that cause us to lean forward and go, "Oh, what's going on here?" So, first of all, what what are those moments from this film, and then how can folks listening translate that into really interactive and lean-forward moments uh, at their tables? Ooh, yeah, the um, so. Really, the lean forward moment is uh, the moment in a scene when a character experiences change, and usually it's it's one character per scene uh, that that gets that emphasis, and then they're gonna do something in the movie, be it a jump cut or hit a sound effect or show a specific prop or uh, frame the camera a certain way. So one is where. Uh, Heath Ledger shouts out his own name before he unseats uh, Adamar in the in the finals, and they slow down the audio. They slow down and overcrank the video, so it's almost in slow motion, and time almost stands still. And then he unseats him, and it's just he told Adamar he'd be looking up from the flat of his back, and uh, Keith has that line after everyone uh, sort of explains Adamar his position to him. Welcome to the new world. <laughs> right. right. <Yes>. Yeah. <laughs> that line. That is a lean forward moment. Um, the, the knighting of Sir William and uh, his father hearing it. You know, the scenes, not just William becomes a knight. The scenes, his father got to hear his son become a knight or his his name chanted. Right. Later on, you hear that they're right. saying, Sir William, you know, like and Charles comes over. He's like, that's your name. Well, yeah, for me, I mean, there, there's there's a few. We, we talked about Chaucer before. Anytime he's making himself the center of the the stage, those those moments are great because he's such a wonderful performer. Um, for me, I, I think the whole interaction with Will and his father. So when he comes back to London, his father, much younger in life, uh, sends Will away because he's a he's a Thatcher. And is very poor and, and can't provide for his son very well. So he convinces a, a knight to take on his son and uh, care for him and educate him. 
And the knight is uh, Little John from Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, which is uh, just another little beat that I enjoy. Um, another movie that I think is is very good. Um, so Little John, this knight, takes young Will with him. And Will's gone from London for 15 years and more or less seems like he assumes his father had died, learns that his father is alive and is now blind. So he returns to his father's very humble hut and speaks with him. The father doesn't know who it is. And then Will says uh, eventually that, you know, I'm your son. And yeah, I cried the first time I saw it was so hard to get through watching that scene today in preparation for this. It was hard to get through a lot of those scenes. Um, it's, uh, yeah, that's, yeah, that, that's one that gets me every time. And it resonates with, with me. My, my father died quite suddenly when I was about to turn nine. So I think any story elements like that in films will, will hit that nerve. It just felt genuine. It, it felt, like they took that element of the movie seriously, which again feels sort of out of place with other elements of the film as a whole. It seems kind of silly to talk about this emotional moment in a Knight's Tale. If you haven't seen it, you're like, what? Um, but as you watch the movie, if you just kind of ride along with it, it fits. And the whole scenes that play out after that of, you know, Will going from this poor nobody to he's knighted by this this prince of england or um the black prince i think mm -hmm. is is his name and another actor who's uh, james purefoy who went on to do uh numerous things you know he he knights him and so he becomes quote-unquote a somebody in front of his father to make his father proud it's just all those elements which i realize are kind of patriarchal and i i don't mean it that way um but just for someone who lost their father and watched that kind of emotional yeah, and resonance I, on screen, I just I definitely just, you know, certainly lean forward there. And I, you know, I grew up without a father in the home. My parents divorced when I was very young. Um, I kind of take a Mr. Rogers approach too, where, you know, when Mr. Rogers would give a speech, he would always say, you know, I want you to close your eyes and think about someone who helped you get to where you are today and just think about them for a minute and say, thank you. So whether it's a father or a friend or a mentor, uh, or someone that, uh, helped you out, you know, it, it, it could be someone on the internet who, who, you know, boosted, boosted, you know, my game or something like that, you know, and I just stop and I think about them for a minute and I thank them for what they did for me and let them know, you know, that I turned out okay because they supported me or they did something for me. Um, and I think everyone in their life sort of has that capacity to either love someone else or be loved and it's, or both in, you know, and I think that's, that's sort of what makes us humans. And, uh, it can be between fathers and sons. It can be between mothers and sons. It can be, um, uh, Daughters, children, siblings, friends—you know—it's—it's it's kind of this universal emotion, I think, that can be applied to uh, our own situation. Yeah. Yeah, and you know, one of the things I, I take take from the film, and 
I think as it applies to to running a game or or, or playing a, a tabletop game, is to it's just sort of this this idea that comes to mind of just like just go for it. Like if you have an idea or something you want to try to execute, like throw throw it out there. <laughs> you know, really uh, put in that effort and don't apologize for being passionate about something that you think is important or that you care about. Um, if that makes sense to you. That makes perfect sense to me. I mean, I started when I started running games online, it's because I just wanted to share. When I first ran, I just called them uh, open mic nights. Anyone can come and play. Anyone can come play a game with me. And we're going to broadcast it. And, you know, sometimes, you know, it would be two people I've never met before. And we'd play a game of D&D that I designed myself. I designed the dungeon and uh, they would play. And I would do it three nights a week because I was just very passionate. I wanted to share this thing with other people. Uh, over time, other people started to play. You know, Jim Davis from WebDM, uh, Matthew Mercer, Satine Phoenix, uh, other people. And they would just play with anyone else. You know, they just wanted to play the game because they love this hobby of games so much. Uh, and other forms of media, too. And I think sort of that message there is, you know, when we're really passionate about these things, it's okay to be crazy about them. It's okay to, uh, it's okay to play the games and it's okay to take the games seriously. It's okay to be emotionally moved by them. Uh, and it's okay to share those emotions with other people, uh, as long as you feel comfortable to do so. Um, and, uh, yeah, I think that's, that sort of says it really, really, uh, the best that I'm able to it's be willing to take your best shot, whatever that is in any avenue of life, be it games, media, uh, professional career, so forth. What's an example of you recently taking your best shot and something that maybe you thought, well, I don't know if other people are going to go along with this, but I really want to do it. So here it is. Uh, well, I produced a show earlier this year and I've, I've done a lot of crazy things. I, I do too much. Um, well, there's, you said your lack of sleep. So, well, there's yeah. there's one thing that I can't mention because I don't have permission to mention it, uh, but it'll be about 287 pages, um, and it will involve uh, the world's first tabletop role-playing game, and it will be original. Um, Interesting. Yes. So that's what I'm doing right now, and I'm deep in it. Uh, but I, I released six different titles this year as a designer, which I hadn't really done before, where I took the deep dive into being a serious designer that's studying to uh, get good at it and uh, learn how to do that craft. Um, I, de I designed a game and ran a show uh, with no prep for audiences on uh, Twitch, on a partnered Twitch stream with a very large audience. We're the highest rated show on Saturday night. It went really well. Sometimes it doesn't always go well. I launched a Patreon because I wanted performers and actual plays to get paid for their time because a lot of people, it's a sacrifice for them to play. They're on everybody's shows. They don't make any money for doing it. And uh, it's a tough biz because it's kind of this new growing medium, or I should say newer, uh, but it's, it's, it's growing and not everyone has the opportunity to get paid. So I launched a, a Patreon just to take care of other people and give, you know, diverse performers an opportunity to get a wage for playing a game for an audience. 
because not everyone would do that. So those are some examples uh, of me just kind of taking my best shot because who knew if the Patreon would be successful or not? Who knew if my show would succeed or fail? Some of these shows, I, you know, it's hard to get viewers in the double digits. Other times you get hundreds of viewers. You never necessarily know going in because you think every show is going to be, you know, a good show because you're going to try your best on it. Um, likewise with the design work, I mean, what if I, uh, you know, what if I, I, I just was bad at it? What if a company put faith in me and had committed funds and resources? I was just bad at it and I couldn't do it. Well, I wanted to take the opportunity to do it and to give it my best shot and to succeed. And, you know, I didn't plan on working on six titles. I worked on one and it went well and it led to other opportunities. So where can people find your stuff online? How can they support you? How can they ask questions if they're curious about some of the things you've been talking about here on the show? Best way to do it is to hit me up on Twitter at WisePapaCrant. Uh, if you need my email, I'll share it with you if you contact me there. Uh, the games and products that I have published, uh, you can purchase them through 2cgaming.com. Uh, you can also purchase uh, products through uh, Third Act Publishing, Reach of Titan Game, uh, Jesse Stevens on the DMs Guild. Um, I'm all over. The The central place to find me, though, is on Twitter at WisePapaGrant or Patreon.com slash GrantREllis. Awesome. And did we miss anything about the movie? I mean, we spent a good more than an hour talking about it. I feel like we gave it its due. Uh, but is there anything we missed? I don't think so. I might have some notes from earlier. But, you know, we can always do a Knight's Tale round two, because I'm sure it's one of those things that we could uh, talk about for as long as we uh, have breath to do so. And uh, that may sound like an exaggeration, but we can really get into the nitty gritty. Yeah, it's, it's a really fun movie. It was a lot of fun thinking about the movie here in recent weeks, uh, talking with you back and forth about doing this podcast, preparing to do the podcast, like watching the, sh watching the movie again was, was really great. Uh, so I thank you for, uh, giving me that opportunity, uh, kind of going along, riding along with this idea. Um, and, and also kind of sharing with me about all the work, the great work you're doing. So, uh, good luck with all the many irons in the fire that you have at the moment. And yeah, you're welcome to come back to talk about a night's tale or anything else in the future, if you like. Well, thank you so much for having me, and I'd love to guest again. What word? Does he live? Oh, aye, he lives. He is very well. He wanted you to know that he changed his styles after all. Thank <laughs> you.